difficult time containing myself in my seat for that song, wanting to jump up and shout and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We do continue our study this morning in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Knowing God and seeing God. John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me if you would. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go, prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I'll ask the Lord once again for his help. Father, God... I come before you again. I seek help from the Holy Spirit of God as I preach your word, that I would do so as you would have me to do so. Lord, that I would not compromise, and that, Lord, anything that I say that could be erroneous, Lord, let it fall on deaf ears. Let your word go forth, Lord, and God, we pray you would save sinners among among us. We pray you would encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Know God and see God. As I was finishing up my sermon, usually when I finish up, I go to the introduction. Introduction comes last for me. I came across a book in my office at home considering the topic of knowing God. An older book, not too old. Many of you are familiar with it. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He has some sensible and advantageous uh, comments in his book right out of the gate, right in the beginning, that I thought were beneficial, that by God and His sovereignty, 
allowed me to open up that book and to see this for us this morning. Packer asks the questions and he gives answers. He says, what, he asks, what were we made for? The answer, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. As the scripture says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's John 17, verse 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God, he says. As Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 says, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God more pleasure? The answer, knowledge of himself. As Hosea 6, 6 says, as what the Lord desires, knowledge of himself is more than burnt offerings. In these few sentences, we have said a very great deal. Our point is one to which every Christian heart will warm, though the person whose religion is merely formal will not be moved by it. And by this very fact, his unregenerate state may be known. What we have said provides at once a foundational, a foundation, a shape and goal for our lives, plus a principle of priority and scales of values. Knowing God and seeing God actually is our first point this morning. As Jesus says to the disciples, we're reminded that Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, has left the room. Here are Jesus, is Jesus with his disciples. This is right before he is getting ready to be uh, arrested. He is getting ready to uh, be betrayed it, as Judas would betray him in the garden. And he's getting ready to go to the cross. And Jesus is concerned for his disciples. Do not let your heart be troubled, he says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. But he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So one question may arise in our minds immediately. Did they know Jesus or did they not? The answer to that would be yes. They did know Jesus. He explained that he goes to prepare a place for them. He goes to prepare a place for those who know him, not for those who do not. So what did Jesus mean here? Well, the disciples did know Jesus and they spent three years with him. Yet, they had a poor understanding of the Father, and a poor understanding of who the Son really was. And combine that with all that they were going through, all that Jesus taught them, and all that Jesus just said to them, and he said, by the way, I'm leaving. And here they were. By the way, one of you will betray me. And here they are. Thinking, grappling, wondering. 
Leon Morris explains, they had known him well enough to leave their homes and friends and livelihood to follow Jesus wherever he went. But they did not know him in his full significance. But Jesus says to them in verse 7, from now on, you know him and have seen him. From now on, you know the Father and have seen the Father. This statement should be understood considering uh, John chapter 1, verse 18. I'll just read it for you. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And Jesus says to them right now, from now on, He tells them, you know the Father. The chain of events that were getting ready to take place would change everything. What chain of events? Well, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. These events would change everything. And these disciples, their knowledge of Christ and their deepening of their understanding of God would would grow. And we are here this morning because of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Just as next Sunday we celebrate as Easter or Resurrection Sunday, each Lord's Day, we're here because of the resurrected Savior. That's who we worship. That's who we serve. And we're here because the Holy Spirit of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we know Him. We know God. And have seen him in Christ. How have the disciples specifically seen the Father? And how will they from now on? Well, because they have seen Jesus. Once again, we have here from the Lord Jesus Christ another claim of deity. If you know me, the Lord says, if you have seen me, you, you know the Father and have seen the Father. Time and time again, Jesus lays out his deity, who he is. The thought of knowing God takes us back to the Old Testament, where we find this as Old Covenant language as well. I'll give you a few texts. No need to turn there. We're going to go to Exodus in a moment, but not right now. Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. The Lord said, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. And in chapter 31, verse 34, speaking of the new covenant, For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. We also find in the Old Testament exhortations to know God. Psalm 46 and verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God, says the Lord. Or Psalm 100 verse 13. Know that the Lord himself is God. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, steps onto the scene, we know and we understand 
He is God in the flesh. And it's only by Christ and through Christ, following Christ, that one may know God. And we see example after example of men and women in the Scriptures that really knew their God. Daniel is an example of one who knew God. He was able to stand firm when it counted. Brothers and sisters, are you preparing yourself to stand firm when you will have to? Daniel, the great example of that, because he knew God. He walked closely with God. He had great thoughts of God as well. What are our thoughts of this God in whom we serve? He also had boldness in God and for God. He had boldness to approach God. He had boldness to live before God. He also had contentment in God when faced with persecution. We also recall that there were theophanies in the Old Testament, which are visible manifestations of God. It seems that Philip is asking for this right here. He's asking for this of of Jesus. Lord, show us the Father and, and it's enough for us. And Philip knew the Old Testament. He knew the Scriptures. He knew uh, uh, the theophanies in the, in the Old Testament. Perhaps one, in particular, in Exodus 33, maybe of something he was considering. Let's turn there. As we know, in the Old Testament, saints had, at times, been given an immediate revelation of who God is. We'll go to Exodus chapter 33. I'll give you another one that we won't go to, and that's 1 Kings 19, 9 through 17, about Elijah. And you could see that as well. For time's sake, we'll just stick with Moses. Chapter 33, verse 18. Well, let's go to verse 17. For the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. That's something I pray before uh, the service at times, before we come in here, when we are praying in the, the conference room, in the boardroom. I ask God, show us your glory for the name of Christ to be glorified. Not give us a manifestation, a theophany, but God, show us your glory. Be glorified in the preaching of the word. Be glorified this day. But Moses here says, I pray you, show me, Moses, a man, your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. 
Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Another scripture we could turn to, but we won't mark it down, is Exodus chapter 24, I believe it is, in verse 10. Again, I mentioned 1 Kings chapter 19, 9 through 17. We also remember um, reading and knowing about Isaiah as he was given a vision of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, sitting on a throne. This is what Isaiah saw. The Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And Isaiah also predicted that in the day of the Messiah, the glory of the Lord would be revealed. That's a text that we've heard taken out of context. And sadly, when I read this verse, sometimes it reminds me of an individual who took that out of context who I won't name. But nevertheless, not anyone here. And Anyhow, remember the disciples, they were startled. They were troubled. They were trembling, trembling in ways. They were bewildered, confused, struggling, grappling, arguing with one another at a point of who would be the greatest. And hearing the fact that Jesus would soon be leaving. So Philip says, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Philip wants more. Show me something. Give us something to see here. And it will be enough for us. Well, Jesus responds in verse 9 about knowing the Lord and seeing the Lord. He says, I have been so long with you, you is plural here, and yet you, singular, have not come to know me, Philip? I've been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? as Jesus challenges them with this response, with His response, with a gentle rebuke as well. His question may have been with some sadness too. Philip is a follower of Jesus. Philip is a genuine convert. But like Peter and Thomas did not fully grasp the Lord's teaching up until this point. Philip had the mind of seeing is believing. You've heard that before, right? I used to say that before the Lord saved my soul. I'm not going to believe something you see in some book there. I need to see it to believe it. How foolish and as arrogant as I was. He wanted something more to spruce up his belief. And we see today that you want something to spruce up a so-called belief? 
you can get charms and trinkets and teachings galore and experiences of galore that will spruce up something, but it won't be sprucing up what the Word of God teaches. There are several different words used in the Greek for the verb seeing. I'll spare you the pronunciation of these verbs this morning, but there are at least three different words. One is the visual apprehension of physical objects, like I, I see the pulpit here. There is also this scene where we get our word theory from. We see something, comprehend it, and form a theory about something. But there's also the word seeing with comprehension and understanding. And that is the verb that is being used here. He who has seen, comprehended, and understood me, says the Lord, has seen, comprehended, and understood the Father. Not he who has seen me as, a, as an object has seen uh, another object. He who has comprehended and understood Jesus has comprehended and understood the Father. He continues, the Lord continues to verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. This oneness with the Father, this communion the Lord has with the Father. Whoever has seen and comprehended and understood Jesus has seen and comprehended and understood the Father. This is the very heart of our belief. Richard Phillips explains, Jesus came to this world to reveal God to mankind, to show us in His life and ministry what God is like, and to reveal to us by His gospel what God intends for our salvation. This teaching is so important that John cited it in the prologue to his gospel, as I referenced before. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So as we proclaim Jesus Christ, we must explain to people that He came to show us who God is. When someone asks, show us God. Well, I'll explain to you Jesus Christ. I'll show you from the Word of God who God is. And Jesus continues, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He is calling all of the disciples, including Philip, to believe in Him and to believe what He says to them. Once again, remember, they were struggling, they were grappling, they were troubled of heart, and Jesus is gently moving them along and teaching them. When Jesus says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, the meaning is that they are one in essence, that they are one in attributes. When Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. Just as we know the, the saying, I believe R.C. Sproul is the one who originated it, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. 
Not only in words, Jesus says, but the works themselves. The miracles and signs Jesus performed throughout his ministry, many of them that we covered in our studies, that the disciples witnessed are there to confirm, strengthen, and solidify their faith. They were troubled. They were wavering at this point. They were not as strong as they could have been at this point in their lives right here. But Jesus says, present tense, keep on believing me. Keep on believing because of the works themselves. We recall in chapter 10, Jesus saying, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Remember Peter preaching on, uh, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter preached and said, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. Seeing or knowing the Lord, seeing the Lord. Secondly, working for the Lord with a prayerful heart. Working for the Lord with a prayerful heart. So Jesus continues with a truly, truly I say to you, and I have mentioned this several times, and we understand that when Jesus says this, something profound is ready to be laid out on the table. Everything Jesus says is profound, but when he says truly, truly, that means listen up. I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do, He will do also. And greater works than these He will do because I go to the Father. I tell you the truth, He says. Greater works than what Jesus did will be done by the disciples. That is indeed a profound statement. Well, a few things to consider. First, we have to know what Jesus meant by these works he was referring to. We ask, what was he referring to? If it were only the signs that Jesus did, then that is quite a tall order to top. Jesus changed water into wine, healed a lame man and a blind man, just to name a few, raised Lazarus from the dead. Also, Jesus was addressing, we recall, a specific group of men, his apostles. We must not assume that everything Jesus said to, to everyone applies to us individually and specifically. For example, the apostles were given the ability and gifting to exercise certain gifts that were for the apostolic age, for specific reasons, which as we understand, if we study, we have ceased today. There are no capital A apostles today. So if someone calls themselves apostle so-and-so, just turn the other way and walk away. What are these TV evangelists, these televangelists doing when they say then that they're 
healing, that they are saying this and this will happen. And they are saying that they are casting out demons. What are they doing then? Deceiving people. That's exactly what they are doing. They are charlatans. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. That should be the most obvious to the Christian. They are demonic. They do and say these things, deceiving people and taking their money. And Jesus has something to say about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You can read that as well in Matthew chapter 7 about the false prophets. I think I referenced that last sermon. So if it was just signs and miracles as far as the works that Jesus was referring to, we would understand that it was specific to the apostles alone. We would understand, okay, if that's indeed the case, if that's what he's referring to, they indeed did great works. They Longer than a three-year ministry period of time. And the Apostle Paul, recall that he asked a question in 1 Corinthians. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? And he expects the answer to be a big, fat no. Jesus specifically told his apostles to disciples to wait in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit. This was specifically to them, not to us. We don't go to Jerusalem to wait as they waited. The apostles did greater works as he promised they would. After Jesus' ascension, after Pentecost, the, the apostles did heal many people. It's the acts of the apostles. And the numerous scriptures we could look at. But also, and this is where I landed on what I believe the Lord was referring to here, the works seem to include the, the large number of people that came to faith in Jesus Christ. When compared to the the amount that came to Jesus in his three-year ministry. 3,000 souls saved in one sermon early on in Acts is an example. So my thinking is that the focus is on the mighty works of conversion in the ministry of the apostles, which is where we come in as well. We want to apply this text as well to ourselves. This leads right to the importance of prayer in verse 13. Working for the Lord with a praying heart. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now we cannot just take these two scriptures out of context and say, wow, we can name and claim anything we want because Jesus said this. And we understand false teachers do this as well. We've got to remember context, context, context. We've got to remember the scriptures surrounding. We've got to remember everything that is around uh, when verses stand out to us. Uh, Jesus is no genie in the bottle. This is clearly connected to the previous verse of the works that the apostles will do. We find the apostles, along with others, consistently devoted to prayer consistently devoted to prayer. A few examples for us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, 
along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Jesus, excuse me, and with his brothers. And Acts chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to do what? Speak the word of God with boldness. A lot of times you hear people say, we want to go back to how the church was in Acts. We want to see all of these wonderful things. But we don't hear them say, we want to go back to praying as they did in the book of Acts. We did that in this church. New England would be transformed by the glory of God, by His grace. If we said all with one mind are going to continually devote ourselves to prayer together, men and women, we need revival in this place, in New England, and in America. A God-wrought revival. No man or woman in this next election is going to do us a hill of beans. It will not change the heart of man. It will not convert a single soul. The Bible will. The preaching of the Word of God will. And that must be our focus. That and fervent prayer. Ask in my name is not simply a formula. Leon Morris again says, it is a prayer proceeding from faith in Christ. A prayer that gives expression to oneness in Christ. A prayer that seeks to glorify Christ. Doing the works of Christ through praying to Christ with the understanding that He is the one who will cause the increase. He will do it, he said. And applications for this abounding in our lives. But first, I want to make some applications with some of the warnings that, to what Jesus just said to Philip. Philip said, Show us the Father. Give me something I can see. Something I can see is something I can experience so that I will believe. Give me something out of the norm. Give me something exciting. You see where I'm going with this? Entertain my flesh. Give me my weekly inoculation. And in the meantime, if I want to know more about Jesus, I will look to Hollywood or to some charismatic chaos and call it good. Give me shivers and goosebumps, tingling thrills, these trances and visions. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know God and see God? Open up your Bible and pray. And study the life of Jesus Christ. Peter believed God's word is all we needed to see God and understand who Jesus Christ is by the guiding Holy Spirit. As he says in 2 Peter, you can turn there if you like. You don't have to. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 through verse 21. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, and who I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic voice made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever made, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So in a nutshell, in summary, Peter is saying we have the Scriptures. We have all that we need. What great works does God have for us to do? We see specifically what he had the apostles to do. Well, in Luke chapter 10, no need to turn there, I'm just going to reference it. Jesus sent out 70 in pairs ahead of him. To every place where he was going to go, Jesus sent them out as laborers into the harvest. They returned joyfully, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You could imagine this. They were, they were going out and, and demons were subject to them because of Christ's name. They said, wow, you know, the, they can't do anything because of Christ's name. And they're rejoicing in this. They were given unique power for a unique period of time. But Jesus said to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Greater works are those that lead to the salvation of sinners. The preaching of the gospel and intercessory prayer for the preaching of the gospel and for those who would hear the gospel. The work of evangelism and the necessity of prayer are found throughout the New Testament. Emphasis is is placed on these and we say, wow, this is, prayer is an, is an emphasis in the New Testament, evangelism an emphasis in the New Testament. Why then can this be the weakest in a local church? Why is that? Well, prayer is work. Evangelism is Work. It takes time. At times when we pray, it takes tears. Now follow me in my context with what I'm saying. I'm not saying every time we pray, oh, that's work, he says. No. I'm saying, why don't we, as, why isn't the church today, why could this be a weak point for them? For a church, for us, perhaps. It takes time away from other things. It takes sacrificing other things and saying, God, no, prayer is more important. Lost souls are more important than X, Y, 
Knowing the Lord and seeing the Lord. Working for the Lord with a praying heart. And loving and obeying the Lord. Loving and obeying the Lord. Jesus also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We have read this before. We have heard this before. This verse connects well to what we have studied this morning for sure. It also connects well to our next study, the next section we have, where there is an emphasis on the verb love. We'll find it used approximately, I think, eight times. Present tense, love. If you love Jesus, keep on loving Jesus, you will continually live in obedience to Him. They go together. The apostles would do great works in the name of Christ, praying in Christ's name, through loving obedience to His commands. Same for us. We obey Christ out of love for Him. He will do great works for the salvation of souls through us by His grace as He sees fit. So what commands are we to obey then? All of what He says. Does this mean we will obey God perfectly line by line? And we do that every day all the time? No, of course not. Because we're sinners. We have remaining sin. But we have a love for Christ in us, which will lead to a desire and attitude of loving and obeying all that is taught in God's Word. We all struggle with sin. The question is, how do we respond to that struggle with sin? Do we go to the Lord and confess our sin? Seek His help to turn from sin? Or do we just keep on going headlong into sin? Loving and obeying the Lord. You cannot know God without knowing Christ. We're all born sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death. You can never be good enough to enter heaven by your deeds. Your works are like filthy rags in God's eyes. If you're not right with Him in His eyes. The only way to get right with God is to reconcile with God through Christ. Recognizing your helplessness. That you have been broken. That you have broken His law. That you have rejected His Son. That you are spiritually and morally bankrupt without Christ. You must see the need for His mercy and His grace. The Scriptures tell us Christ died for the ungodly. That's people like you and me. God demonstrated His love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The response for everyone individually must be to repent, turn in away from sin, and place their faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of your soul. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move, move into communion. <clears throat>
Father. Help us to know you more and more, O God. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus in our lives. We want to see Jesus in the lives of others, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, you have given us great works for you to do with a prayerful heart. That we would do what you have called us to do for your glory. You have commanded us that we are to love and obey you. If we love you, we will keep your commandments. Oh, how far we fall short of loving you as we should and as obeying you as we should. It reminds us of our need for you each and every day. We ask as Moses would ask as he prayed, show us your glory, show us uh, how we may glorify you, honor you in our lives each and every day. And as we go to the Lord's table this morning, grab a hold of our hearts, O Lord. Help our minds, God, to be fixated upon the words that Christ has, the words that he said as we partake together. In Jesus' name, amen.